Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. The show with the host that's like a summer rose, except he doesn't smell good and he's got one tiny little thorn. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I am your host, Brian Levine. And on this week's show, in Pipe Parts, uh, I'm going to read an abstract from a, a university in Macedonia. Uh, the Scientific Tobacco Institute in Macedonia on the production of uh, oriental tobaccos in the Balkan countries. Uh, it's going to give you a, a kind of a sneak peek into the state of the oriental tobacco world, and it's not all cheerful. Uh, however, my guest is uh, Mark Irwin, the uh, one of the co-authors of the Peterson Pipe book, and that's all cheerful. So we get to talk to Mark and see what else he's up to besides the Peterson Pipe book. And then we have uh, recommended music, mailbag, and stay all the way to the end of the show for what's normally the rant section because that's where... I will be letting you know what items are coming up for bid in the Pipes Magazine radio show, JDRF fundraisers, and I will let you know where to go to get them. Uh, Remember, all the proceeds from these items, 100% of the proceeds go to fighting a cure or finding a cure or finding finding better treatments for those dealing with type 1 diabetes like my daughter. And I believe this is the seventh time we've done this, and we are well over $13,000 raised in the uh, history of the Pipes Magazine radio show. Um, Also, if you would like, I have Pipes Magazine radio show baseball hats and buttons. Uh, It's a $30 donation, which covers the cost of postage in the United States, and that also covers the cost of the hat. And then uh, it works out to about uh, $20, $21 in a donation, and the, you know, the rest covers the postage. So if you're interested in those, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com, or you can go onto my Facebook page or Instagram page and direct message me there. You'll also see pictures of the hats if you go through my uh, history there. So I've only got about, uh, I think, about 10, 12 of those left. So let me know. Been uh, Sending those out. Those of you that have gotten them, please uh, post pictures of them on uh, Facebook, Instagram. Post them on the PipesMagazine.com forums. All right, let's get the show rolling. So everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in, and here we go. There's nothing quite like fishing at dawn or smoking my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com. And we are back. All right, so first of all, I'm a bad I'm a bad podcaster because uh, I got this emailed to me by a listener. Uh, got this link and yeah, I, it was so long ago. It was during the middle of all the, or right at the beginning of all the uh, recordings for the Ask the Experts, and I printed it out. And whoever sent it to me 
please email me again. I want to thank you personally, but I forgot who you are. Um, all right, so this is this is called a production of Oriental Tobaccos in the Balkan Countries, and it's from the Scientific Tobacco Institute. This is an abstract. It's a uh, I mean, this is a real study, and Kevin's put a link to the uh, to the full article in the show uh, in the show listing here at pipesmagazine.com. So go on to the Pipes Magazine radio show page there, and you'll see the link to this full article. But um, here's here's the basics of it, and I'm going to read this. And I know reading is boring, but this is important to understand what's going on in the world of tobacco. Uh, and remember, again, we are in the pipe tobacco world. We are a very, 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 very small portion of the tobacco that is consumed, but it affects us. So uh, the abstract says production of oriental tobaccos is mainly located in the Balkan countries, as well as in some countries of Asia and former Soviet republics. The share of this type in the world tobacco production is gradually decreasing. The tendency of decreasing has been clearly observed in the Balkan countries. Subsidies given by the state help to maintain tobacco production in Macedonia and Bulgaria. The leading producer in the last five years was Turkey with 77,000 tons, followed by Bulgaria and Greece and Macedonia and Albania and so on. Uh, the main reasons for this decline is the abolishment of subsidies in Greece and the shift from tobacco toward olive production and development of tourism in Turkey. To maintain the production of oriental tobaccos in the Republic of Macedonia, the government must continue with subsidi subsidi subsidization. There we go. So again, this is from, a, uh, this is from the Scientific Tobacco Institute in Macedonia. Uh, and it's a proposal to, uh, to make more money. Um, the introduction says uh, oriental tobaccos account for only about 4% of the world tobacco production. In world frames, this tobacco is grown mainly in the Balkan countries, Turkey, Greece, Bulgaria, Macedonia, and also in Italy, Egypt, South Africa, and Syria, etc., it is named by the area in which it is grown, the Eastern Mediterranean, and its varieties are named by the towns or regions of growing. Samsun, Izmir, Katerini, uh, and a couple others that I can't pronounce. Um, it is also known as, as Turkish tobacco because it had been grown in the Ottoman Empire. Oriental tobaccos are characterized by their small leaves. They're grown on poor soils in areas with a large number of sunny and warm days, which contribute to the formation of their strong aromatic and sweet and sour flavor while smoking. Uh, then it, it gives a little bit more background. Uh, results and discussions. The total share of oriental tobaccos is about 4% in 2010 of the total production in the world. Until 2000, this production ranged from 500,000 to 600,000 tons. But after 2000, there was a tendency of decreasing, and in the last few years, the production has been stabilized at about 250,000 tons. So I want you to note there in... 10 years, it was a 50% drop-off. 
the drop in world production of Oriental tobaccos is consecutively followed by a drop in the Balkan tobacco producing countries. In this paper, analysis was also made on the share of certain tobacco types by country and production. Now, I'm yeah, again, I, I highly if you're I highly suggest that if you're interested, go to the link that we've posted for this article. Uh, but it just shows something you know, very simply in uh, 1998, there was about 600,000 tons grown. And the last time this when after the study was done in 2010, there was 248,000 tons. So that's a drop off of more than 50 percent. Uh, the other thing that's interesting that you'll notice in here is the decrease in what I would call the traditional Turkish varietals. Uh, for, exa for example, uh, Black Sea has went from uh, 5,600 tons down to zero in 2010. And then it goes down and it breaks it down even further by country and by other varietals. So uh, just as an example, in, uh, in Bulgaria... Uh, tobacco is growth. Uh, tobacco growing is on the increase in this in some strains and on the decrease in others. In Greece alone, in Greece alone, it went from about a hundred thousand tons in two thousand down to twenty six thousand tons in two thousand ten. So again, if you want to get more depressed or you want to see more about this. Uh, the link is down below, or you can uh, simply do what I did and to find it, which is search in quotes production of Oriental tobaccos in the Balkan countries, and you'll find a, a link to it on tobaccobulletin.mk. Uh, just interesting, and, and keep in mind again that the you know the predominant amount of Oriental tobaccos was sold into cigarettes. And as cigarettes became, uh, as the requirement for that tobacco became less and less important because cigarettes became more and more flavored or manipulated, well, so did the drop-off. And then you also have the countries that were no longer subsidizing farmers to grow tobacco, and they switched products. All right, so there you go. Take a look at that. Let me know what you think. Uh, in just a moment, Mark Irwin. This is Internet Radio. Have a look in your tobacco cellar. What do you see? Think of what you smoke, what you age, what you're drawn to in a blend that keeps you wanting more. That's your taste. And whether you know it or not, you've been leading that expedition since you first picked up a pipe just by smoking what you like and liking what you smoke. But the funny thing about taste it changes, and you need a wide selection to accommodate it. We at Smoking Pipes know this, and you know it too. So whether you're searching for a tried and true favorite, or a singular boutique mixture, we're here to help you navigate the voyage of your evolving tastes. But you're still at the helm. Smoking Pipes, in faithful service of the hobby. We're back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and my guest is a uh, another another return guest, but 
It's been over six years since you were on the show, and when you were on the show last, you were working on a book, a Peterson book, and I was going to have you back on the show after the book came out, but the book sold out pretty darn quick. So um, anyway, we've got some news, we've got some information, and we're going to visit with uh, doctor, doctor and author Mark Irwin. Mark, welcome back to the show. Wow, it is fantastic to be back. And uh, if anybody wants to really torture themselves, well, go back and listen to Mark talk on an episode. I think it was like 74 or 78 and we'll get your uh we'll get your superhero. You can get the superhero origin story there, but um yeah, thanks for coming back and let, let's talk about the book. So the Peterson book came out when? It was launched at the uh, Chicago show. Uh, it had been out a couple of months. So the Chicago show last year, 2019. And um, it did really well. It, we sold about half of the books by August or September. And I got word from the publisher about a month or two ago that he just sold the last copies to Smoking Pipes. So... Uh, it was actually officially sold out before we found out we had uh, won a gold medal for best first nonfiction book from the Ippies, from the uh, Independent Publishers Association, which has got to be some kind of first. So, I mean, th th this is a this was a was or is uh, it was a serious book and it got awarded by what I'm sure is probably not a group of happy pipe smokers in the uh, th that gives out these little Ippy awards. Yeah, I was really surprised. Um, I mean, I knew as soon as I saw the first couple of layouts from our designer that it was going to be pretty fantastic, uh, pretty special. And so I, I, being a longtime bibliophile, I was like, you know, this ought to be entered into a competition. And I started looking around a long time ago and found out that the Independent Publishers Association here in America does a kind of Olympics for independently published books and just put that in the back of my mind. Uh, and then when the book finally came out, uh, I asked the publisher, I said, hey, why don't, why don't we enter this just on a chance? Uh, it probably won't win because it's about pipes, but it's a good looking book and I'd, I'd like to do it. And he said, you know, okay, uh, I'll enter the book for you. So uh, I am surprised and I'm not surprised, you know. I'm, I'm surprised because it's about pipes and I didn't know anybody but you and me and two or three other of us guys even knew anything <laughs> about pipes. And then uh, not surprised because when you open it, I mean, and I'm not saying this in a, uh, kind of a, you know, wow, aren't I great mode. I'm more saying it in a, I open it up and I'm like, wow, I can't believe that, that me and my friends put this together. So <laughs> I was really tickled. Yeah. All right. So who all, who all officially worked on the final version? It was you, Gary Malmberg, anybody else? That and yeah, my wife, Marie Irwin, which Gary and I considered our third author because it's it's not a coffee table book. If, if you've had a chance to look at it, uh, it, I mean, it looks like a coffee table book. But then when you start reading it, you're like, wow, this is this is uh, pretty intense. So she's uh, an academic librarian by vocation. And so she's had long training in because uh, uh, she's had a lot of training in um, 
usability issues because she wanted the book to uh, be accessible to people who don't ordinarily read books and to people who just might want to flip through it, uh, people who have a special interest. You know, maybe they're just interested in the old pipes or maybe they're just interested in restoration. So she tried to create a flow, a visual flow for it that would put the uh, uh, pictures with the text in such a way that you could just kind of dip in and out of it uh, in any way you wanted from starting at the very beginning and reading back to the index or just going, okay, all I really want to know is this one thing. So uh, even though she didn't get uh, an author's credit, she uh, uh, when when we got the medal, Gary and I both gave it to her to uh, hang around her neck. So I haven't <laughs> seen her wearing it actually, but uh, I suspect she does when I'm not looking. <laughs> now, how many illustrations or pictures or things ended up in the book? Do you know? Oh, wow, you know it took a year just to call the photographs. After we had written the text, it took a whole year just to get the illustrations together. So I don't know. Oh, goodness. I'm 2000, maybe. Wow. There's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there. Yeah, I mean, I got to admit, you know, I, I was it was a short. Uh, it, it was a short, quick Chicago pipe show for me. And I thought, well, I'll get the book. And, you know, but then. Boom, boom, boom. I was in and out and like everything at Chicago, you know, you think, oh, I'll get back. I'll get back to that. And then before you know it, it's Sunday right. night and it's closed. And so, you know, I have to admit, I haven't actually touched the book. I saw you guys sitting at the table there signing them. But mm -hmm. uh, so you what? So it published in early 2019. Is that correct? Yeah, it was out. Um, I think they, they actually went on sale in February 2019, and then Smoking Pipe, we launched it in May, and I think Smoking Pipe's may have started carrying it in April, so it was not quite a year uh, from the time it launched to the time it sold out, and like I say, I mean, Smoking Pipe still has a couple hundred copies, but it's, it's gone, unless somebody uh, snatches one up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so how many years did you have working on this project? And of course, this wasn't the only thing you were doing for work. So, Yeah, it was, um, I was a teacher for all, but I was still teaching for all, but I guess the last, about the last year. So it's about a seven year process from the time it became obvious that I would have to be the one in charge of it to the time it finally appeared. And how many trips to Ireland did you end up making? Um, we made three uh, in total. I, I went over in 2009 just to get the bug out of my system because I thought, well, if I go see the factory, then I can just let it go because I will have seen how they did it. But when I came back, I wanted to write it even worse. <laughs> so 2013, the three of us went over, and we were there for a week at the factory uh, all three of us working as hard as we could from about 30 minutes before they opened till they kicked us out the door every day. And then we went over last summer uh, just to say thank you to everybody and to uh, visit with all the old hands and uh, get them to autograph my copy of the book. 
any chance of you printing more down the road or maybe uh maybe another uh, another um, edition of it Ooh, i hope not another edition my my wife told me that i will be uh living by myself if she has to reset <laughs> that book um but the publisher said he didn't think it would be reprinted because of the expense uh that book was sixty dollars when it came out and he said if he reprints it it's going to be at least 75 and so what he and i decided as we were talking about it was uh that we felt like there would be a need for uh, a kind of pocket reference book that would be much less expensive so it's a kind of an idea where you would revise uh, things that needed to be brought up to date. You could incorporate some new historical material, but just take most of the reference materials out of it. Uh, so the tentative title of the new book that's just in its planning stages is The Pocket Peterson, A Collector's Guide. It's kind of um, like a yeah, kind of like a bird watcher's guide. Exactly. Exactly. It, it's that that's in my mind to have it about that size, about seven and a quarter tall by about four wide. You know, those tall, narrow pages that you can just slip in your uh, pocket when you go to a show or keep on your desk and has a little leatherette cover, you know. So uh, I talked to Sykes Wilford at Smoking Pipes about it, and they're really excited about it. And uh, actually, Peterson has volunteered uh, to go uh, and help us with uh, establishing as, as far as possible all the bold codes and shape numbers so that we can have a fairly comprehensive look at the 150-year uh, bowl shapes and names and lines, wow. uh, which uh, I think is going to take us a little while, but I think that would be nice. Yeah, let's take a break right here. When we come back, we'll talk more with Mark about this book, and we'll talk about a couple other books that he's got. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. Being at the forefront of craft tobacco production for over 20 years, we've been involved in some rather interesting projects at Cornell and Deal. From the Cellar Series to the Small Batch Project, we're extremely proud of how far we've come. So moving forward, we wanted to take it back to basics, and that's what the Burley Flake Series is all about. Burley is an underrated varietal, but there is a ton of nuance there. Using various condimental tobaccos to accentuate different aspects of the air-cured leaf, each blend in this series is intended to showcase different individual subtleties inherent to Burley. It's a simple concept, one that I think really speaks to the essence of what we do at C&D, as a crew of folks who just love tobacco. It's also really good. Cornell & Deal's Burley Flakes series, wherever fine tobaccos are sold. We're back on the Pipes Magazine radio show visiting with uh, award-winning noted author and uh, Dr. Mark Irwin of the uh, the Peterson Pipe book. i got to get the title right. It's the Peterson Pipe, the story of Cap'n Peterson. Uh, now that the book's done, what was, was, is, there a, is there a discovery that you made while researching the book that was the most surprising to you or something that, yeah, you know, something that kind of stood out to you more than others? 
Yeah. Um, what becomes increasingly evident is that Charles Peterson uh, was kind of a combination, let's say, between um, oh, uh, a Beau Nord as an artisan and uh, a Thomas Edison as inventor and a Sykes Wilford as entrepreneur. <laughs> and he just kind of, he seems to be kind of a polymath. I mean, he knew, he knew Russian, he knew German, he knew English. Uh, when he was 22, he moved to Dublin from Latvia, you know, which is a backwater in, in Russia, and started repairing and making pipes for Frederick Cap. And when he was 32 or 33, he and his uh, first wife, Sarah Cap, who was the widow of Frederick Cap's brother, uh, went in together in kind of one of these arranged marriages, and she brought her money and he brought his patents and uh, kind of started to launch this, this new idea of Captain Peterson as a factory. Hmm. And then by the time he was 38, they had uh, launched the business with the help of uh, his nephew. Uh, and started making pipes with a factory uh, crew of about 20. And what what's really interesting to me about him is his social inclusivity. He uh, he never he's he's just a fascinating individual because you see all his pictures and he's always smiling, he's always making jokes, and he just seems way too happy. Um, he didn't ever take a very large salary. Uh, he seemed to be concerned about the people around him. Uh, for example, at uh, one Christmas in 1894-95, uh, they sent a bunch of pipes over to uh, these poor sandwich board men in London, which were, you know, they walk around with the big board and advertisements, and they were just kind of the lowest, lowest of the low. And they did that for two or three years, and then when World War I came, uh, and they knew that uh, these Irish brigades were going up from Northern Ireland. They sent like 20,000 pipes to the front. Wow. Um, which, which was very interesting in 1914. But uh, they, in their own factory, what's, what's interesting is they employed about as many women as they did men, which I know is not unusual for the day, but they seem to have paid their women and their men a really good wage. And they seem to be sensitive to uh, the political and religious um, sensibilities of the people that they worked for and the people that they sold to. For example, they gave, um, they had some Jewish guys that worked there and they gave them off for the religious holidays. Um, they had a, charity uh christmas dinner for the poor in dublin at the church which was literally built next to the factory there's a little unitarian church there and this was done by the employees not by the uh management so the employees every year would do this big christmas thing uh right next door and they had these big uh they would take all the employees out every year out to lindelock or someplace at the very end of the uh, business year in june uh, for a holiday, and then they'd all come back to town for a dance, uh, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. So that you, you're right. It, I mean, that is a very socially forward-thinking uh, kind of management, for especially for that time. Yeah. 
Yeah, I thought so too. Uh, and he was he he uh, registered in the 1910 census as a free thinker, but the free thinking movement uh, in the late 1800s was primarily directed against uh, these Christian legalists and so forth. Uh, but and it was kind of negative. It was a kind of a um, it was there to attack uh, organized religion. But what Peterson seems to have used it for was so he wouldn't have to identify as a Roman Catholic or as a Protestant. <laughs> see his see his yeah see his wife uh, and kids were Roman Catholic and baptized there, but because he was a free thinker, you see, he didn't have to get into the politics of uh, Ireland. <laughs> so he did, yeah, which was kind of interesting. Even though, okay, having said that. They did hide uh, munitions and arms for the uh, insurgent patriots in the uh, uprising in 1960 in their basement. Wow. And as, a, and as a matter of fact, his brother had to leave the country because his brother was a pretty outspoken socialist. And he got in enough trouble. He had worked for the factory. He got in enough trouble that he had to leave. So um, Charles was... Like I say, he was always interested in peace, and he didn't really care what your politics or religion was. He really just wanted you to kind of relax and smoke your pipe and say, you know, it's it's going to be okay. You just need to stop and think about it a little bit. And and at one point, didn't Charles hold like a like a couple of dozen patents or yeah, on all kinds of stuff? Yeah, um, Charles, even though the the system patent in eighteen ninety, which went through first, second, and third patents before he was done with it, was his big claim to fame. Um, he patented a detangling hair comb because uh, <laughs> all the ladies at the time, like you can see him looking at his, he had a really cute second wife, Annie, and you can just see her going, you know what, uh, I'm having trouble here. And he's like, oh, you know, I can fix that. So uh, <laughs> he, he patented this uh, comb for her. And he worked. he kept working on the system pipe uh, as a matter of fact, last summer, uh, Silver Great and Brad Pullman made replicas for 14 or 15 of us of uh, Charles Peterson's nap in a P mouthpiece, which is really unusual and gives a, a really huge flavor blast uh, to your palate because it shoots smoke out from uh, a side vent and it kind of looks like a clamshell fist. Mm -hmm. And so instead of the smoke coming out the tip, it comes out two sides and then up and down. Um, yeah, and I, Silver said it. Silver and Brad said it was one of the hardest things they'd ever made. I saw one of them at the West Coast Pipe Show, I believe. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's where we uh, we got together and uh, talked about our experiences. Shane Ireland was really impressed with it. He thought it was a pretty cool uh, invention, but. It would have to be handmade. He said, "There's no way a factory could could do this in a with a molded uh, vulcanite or, or acrylic." Yeah, in right. his opinion. In his opinion. So, so the book's the book. It's done. And if you can get a copy, grab a copy. Uh, let's talk about some of the other stuff you've done because we didn't on the other show on your other visit. But you you wrote a book on pipe smoking in Middle Earth and it's not available anymore right right um i did it was kind of my um first venture 
I had been talking to Bill uh, Unger, mm-hmm. um, the late Bill Unger from uh, the Pipe Collector, about that, and he said it's. Uh, he said, "Why don't you write me some pieces?" But he said, "This pipe smoking in Middle Earth is way too big for me to attempt to to do in uh, our magazine." And so, with his encouragement, I went ahead and self-published that. And it kind of, you know, everybody has different reasons why they take up the pipe. And for me, I was I was stuck at home in high school with mononucleosis, and had a copy of The Lord of the Rings. And the more I read it, the more interested uh, interested in pipe smoking I got. Until I finally went and found my dad's K Woody in a drawer in the living room, <laughs> and uh, went down and bought some horrible cherry tobacco from the local tobacconist. And I always thought, you know, I ought to write a book about all the pipe smoking references in Middle Earth. So um, I finally did. Uh, I guess six or eight years ago, uh, did the illustrations myself, and it went through, I think we sold about 400 copies of it, and then I got interested in the Peterson book, and looking at it now, it looks to me like I really need to write a new introduction, and the Hobbit movies have come out since then, and one of the cool things about the book that I like is in the back, it's got an appendix so you can find every mention of pipes or tobaccos in the entire Lord of the Rings and in all the Lord of the Rings movies. So minute and second, you know, and that kind of thing. But I need to do that for The Hobbit and then uh, do some rewrites uh, for the introduction. And uh, my designer, uh, my wife says she's <laughs> up to uh, <clears throat> she's up to doing that uh, maybe early next year. So hopefully we'll get out a new edition of that. So that'd be a good pocket guide for uh, pipe spotting in while you're sitting and watching the movies. Exactly, exactly. And I have some pretty harsh words to say uh, to Peter Jackson for his uh, lack <laughs> of using real pipes. But if you get over that, you'll have a good time. Well, at least we know he used real tobacco at some point. Uh, exactly, exactly. But you can you can still find maybe a used copy laying around. In the meantime, let me know the minute that that book is ready and out, and uh, uh, the the new version of it's ready and out, and we'll make sure and uh, we'll make sure and tout about it, and I'll buy it so that I can have another reason to watch the eighteen hours of all six movies again. Um, exactly, exactly, nonstop. Um, and then uh, another book. I mean, you've been busy. It's a good thing you retired now, because now you might have some free time to to be not so busy. Um, it is. It is. I agree. Yeah. But the uh, the pipes of Basil Rathbone's Sherlock Holmes. So this came out what another another one about a year ago. Um, I think I'd have to go look on Amazon. Uh, that book came about. Um, because I had contacted an illustrator with the, uh, about the Peterson book, and he had done a cartoon of Basil Rathbone holding what I thought looked like a Peterson pipe. And everybody that I knew said, oh, no, 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 no. Sherlock Holmes, Basil Rathbone always smoked a Dunhill, never smoked a Peterson. And this guy said, no, no, you, you got to see this in this movie. So I... Uh, watched a really horrible print of the movie he was talking about on YouTube. And I was like, 
damn, that does look like Peterson. <laughs> so I bought some good Blu-rays, and we went, sat down and watched all 14 of these movies that were made from 1935 to maybe 47. I forget. And uh, then I got in contact with a, a film professor at University of California, Los Angeles, and got to talking with him and learn how to do the film captures. So I went through all of those and pulled out film captures of every person smoking a pipe to see what I could identify. And lo and behold, Basil Rathbone smokes the Peterson straight-sided billiard in the last, I think the last 10 of those films. So I finally put the myth to rest that while he did smoke a pipe that looks an awful lot like a Dunhill in the first two, he absolutely did smoke a Peterson 4B in uh, the last 10 films. And you can just watch it get more and more oxidate, uh, <laughs> oxidized and more beat up as the films go along. <laughs> uh, were you able to catch what tobaccos he smoked or was it just in a pouch? Um, you know, there was a couple of mentions of tobacco. In fact, in one of the movies... The tobacco is the central plot, and it's the film The House of Fear, I believe. And there's a I'm, I'm giving a plot spoiler here. Oh, spoiler alert. A, yeah, there's a poison tobacco in it, and it all revolves around this tobacconist and this tobacco, uh, which is fun. Because uh, <laughs> everybody's smoking a pipe in that film. Uh, as a matter of fact, Nigel Bruce, who plays uh, Watson in all the films, he had a... a my friend Gene Umberger pointed this out to me. He said uh, that Nigel Bruce had a clause in his contract that he was to get $5 every time he brought a different pipe to the set of the movie. Mm -hmm. So he tried to bring a different pipe to every day of shooting when he was on those films. <laughs> I would have brought a couple a day. Um, all right, now let, let, let's get into let, let's get into some juicy stuff. Uh, so right. when you when you started the book, the Peterson Company was owned by Tom Palmer, and yeah, you know, we I've had Tom on the show. He's a great guy. And now the company's under new ownership. Um, what have you seen that's exciting and different? What do you think of what's coming up or going on with the uh, with the Peterson Pipe Company? Um, Tom was of course so crucial to the company's survival. And when he bought it, it, it was in some, uh, some trouble. Uh, and then we had the cigar boom, which really helped him and the company. Yeah. And as a businessman, he was just the best at trying to figure out what's going on in the pipe world and what are people interested in. And he really capitalized that the whole beginning of the collectible pipe era. Uh, he brought out the pipe of the year. His was either the first or one of the first companies to do that, uh, which was a high-grade pipe. And then he brought out um, kind of gateway pipes, uh, Christmas annual pipes and Father's Day and even a July 4th. And uh, now they do a summertime, for example, that are uh, very inexpensive. But nevertheless, collectibles and different finishes and, and, and have always done really well. So when he left the company uh, and Laudisi took over, um, Sykes said at the very beginning that he wanted to 
concentrate on the company's heritage and its history. And by heritage, what he really meant, as we've seen since they bought the company, was engineering and bringing back some of the uh, things that had been outsourced for a long time and making it the best pipe uh, possible uh, for the company. So, for example, they um, brought back in-house rustication, and then they brought back uh, about a year ago, they started doing in-house sandblasting. And as uh, as a matter of fact, this January, Smoking Pipes released uh, for their month of January celebration uh, a line. In fact, I've got one on my desk here in front of me, uh, an in-house sandblast that's just absolutely incredible. They they have a, a big industrial you know strength uh, in-house um, cabinet. And I got to watch a couple of guys do these blasts, and they really are phenomenal. Uh, so Smoking Pipes, or, or Loud Easy actually, has really been concerned with making slow and incremental changes that affect uh, everything on their pipes from the engineering uh, inside out. And their first, their, their first the, the two pipe of the years they've done, last year they chose... Uh, the John Bull, which is a, we'd all call it a chubby, uh, chubby Rhodesian. No, it's round circle. Chub, well, uh, the classic 999. And then this year they're going to do another classic shape from the 1940s and 50s, which is a, a chubby bent billiard called the 9BC that uh, collectors uh, have been wanting for a long time. As a matter of fact, I had to give mine up when I was over there last summer because they wanted to use it uh, <laughs> to help them in the design. And I was like, okay, <clears throat> as long as I get it back. So they are really trying to make it back into a Irish-made pipe, completely Irish-made pipe again. Right. Uh, and, you know, the craftsmen are very excited about doing it, too, which is which is fun to see. Yeah. Um they they really want to do as much of it as they possibly can. In these times when I can't travel, now I want to go to Dublin. Thank you very much. Well, you need to go. Yeah, yeah you need to go and and see what's going on out there. Because uh, when when I was there last summer, here's here's something that'll make you want to go. Um, Patty Larrigan uh, and Liam Larrigan, uh, one's ninety three and one's ninety one. They came up, and Patty is a kind of the, the last of their uh, artisans who could uh, hand make a pipe for you on the lathe and do everything, you know, from the, the hand cut stem and, and all that. And his brother Liam uh, did silver work. So they were each at the head of their respective departments from the 1950s uh, till when they retired in the early 90s. So Liam comes in on a walker with his granddaughter and he sits down and kind of hard of hearing and everything and really enjoying himself. And finally, uh, when we're all drinking punch and eating cake, uh, Josh or somebody says, now, all you old timers, if you want to go out on the factory floor and make a pipe, be our guest. So guess who hops up out of the chair <laughs> and his granddaughter leads him out 
And this man has not turned a silver spigot or a silver uh, domed mount for 25 years. And we all watch him do three of them in a row. Wow. And I, I couldn't believe it. I guess, you know, muscle memory is that kind of thing that, he wasn't happy with one of them, but I was like, you know what? I think you're doing fine. <laughs> yeah. It was incredible to watch him spin the silver at 91 years old. Mm. On that, we will wrap this up with the fast five final questions. No right answer, no wrong answer. Just whatever comes to your mind. Are you ready? I'm ready. What is your favorite pipe? <sighs> Well, it's going to have to be the Peterson 309, but, you know, I've been smoking a Jim Cook long shank Canadian lately, and it's <laughs> a really good run for the money. And what is your favorite tobacco? Probably Marlin Flake right now. If you can get it. Um, what is your favorite drink? Either an IPA or a stout, a good craft beer. And when it's time to relax, do you prefer a book, a movie, or music? Since I'm smoking my pipe, it's going to be a movie or a book. And then finally, do you have a, a recent favorite pipe smoking related memory? I think it was my wife saying, hey, come here, you got to look at this and seeing that we won the gold medal. Uh, for the Ippy Award. I, I couldn't yeah. believe it. She was like bouncing up and down, and I thought, okay, something's going on here. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that was pretty amazing. Mark, I hope we get a whole bunch of response from this. We hope, hope we get a, uh, yeah, hope we, hope we force you to print more, print more copies of the Peterson book. Thanks for what you're doing, and thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, you're welcome. And tell people if they're interested in any of this, they can go to the Peterson Pipe Notes blog and, and get in touch with me. And they can see uh, the Rathbone book and they can leave comments to uh, pick up uh, information about Peterson or just ask questions. I'm glad you mentioned that because I have it right here in front of me and there's a lot of good articles on there and you're keeping it fresh and up to date and there's even more information on there than what we could cover here and in the book. So it's petersonpipenotes.org. Mark Irwin, doctor, award-winning author, uh, retiree, pipe smoker, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. We'll be back in just a minute. A Savinelli pipe is a testament to a long legacy, fortified by well-worn hands and destined to be enjoyed for generations. For over 150 years, Savinelli has been dedicated to sourcing the world's finest briar, committed to pushing the boundaries of pipe design, and devoted to the tradition of Italian pipe making. Savinelli is more than a mark. They're a way to help you make your mark, and like you, there can only be one Savinelli. <laughs> This is Internet Radio. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show. And uh, it's uh, at time of editing on this uh, Tuesday morning, June 30th. Smokingpipes.com had just over 20 copies of the book left. So if you still want one, uh, early downloaders, you got a good shot. So jump on in there. All right, for music, uh, 
A friend of mine on Facebook and a regular show listener, Kirby Booth, sent this along, and uh, it, it's called uh, Brightleaf and Burley, and it's a uh, performance by uh, uh, B.J. Barham, and I, at first listening to it, I heard the tobacco references, but then I also heard uh, the second or third time through, I heard the references to the opioid addiction, so it's a little bit of a tale of uh, what's going on in eastern Kentucky or the Appalachians and uh, just give it a listen it's uh, there, there's a lot going on in here our names have been on that mailbox the last hundred years with a walking definition of blood sweat and tears you ask them who we are, they'll tell you mean and surly. We're the keepers of tradition, that bright leaf and burly. We get low down, we get high as a kite. Lord, I wish I may, Lord, I wish I might be singing this song when I hit the pearly gates. Greetings from Tobacco Town, USA. Greetings from Tobacco Town, USA I've been wandering these roads since I was three years old Watching the men I thought were gods turning green leaves into gold Now the fields are all empty, curing barns are growing cold all the while another cash crop just begging to be sold Yeah, we got the infrastructure, Lord knows we got the will But a solution to a problem doesn't pay that problem's bills So they'll keep calling it illegal, keep pumping us with pills Tell Roosevelt what the Bible Belt went and did to his new deal. We get low down, we get high as a kite. Lord, I wish I may, Lord, I wish I might be singing this song when I hit the pearly gates. Greetings from Tobacco Town, USA. Greetings from Tobacco Town, USA. Be it paper, oil, Coal or steel If the factory work ain't left yet Better dollar that it will We redefine resilience We'll make it somehow But if God was gonna save us He'd have done it by now If God was gonna save us He'd have done it by now So we get low down We get high as a kite Lord I wish I may Lord I wish I might Be singing this song when I hit the pearly gates, greetings from Tobacco Town, USA. Greetings from Tobacco Town, USA. That is BJ Barham, and the band name is uh, American Aquarium. They are a. Uh, uh, kind of an alternative country band and they're uh, based right here in North Carolina so check them out well let's see what's in the mail 
And remember, stay tuned all the way to the end of the show during the normal rant section for uh, what will be coming up with the JDRF auctions. And again, thank you for everything that everybody has donated. Uh, big mailbag, so thank you all that have emailed or posted or sent in comments. Really appreciate that. Uh, but Java3 says, uh, regarding ice fishing, Brian, I assure you, having owned and operated either a fishing resort or a motel that primarily catered to ice fishing, that you need to get 150 to 200 miles north of Chicago to drive on a car uh, to drive in a car on a lake approximately six inches of ice will support the weight of a half ton truck uh two and a half inches to four inches will support a person and a bit thicker will support an atv or snowmobile uh, only one hole means only one line going through it ice fishing is big bucks where i live now on the minnesota canadian border people rent a cabin ice fishing from the resort to uh, get taken out to the lake and modified track vehicles that sometimes start out life as a conversion van. The front tires are replaced by skis and the back has a large uh, track-like uh, thing. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, and he lives about uh, 50 miles from the nearest uh, from the nearest fast food restaurant. So thank you for explaining that on ice fishing. Um, News from uh, Columbus, Ohio on the NASPC, and this comes from the president, Jeff Knoll, and it says uh, the, the 2020 NASPC swap cells show is a go in accordance with guidelines set by the Ohio Health Department, and with a lot of help from the Crown Plaza, we feel safe and confident in saying that the show will go on. So set your sights on August 21st and 22nd at the Crown Plaza North in Columbus, Ohio for the first major show of the pipe show season. Uh, tables will be spaced further apart and aisles will be wider to adhere to social distancing guidelines. Uh, while masks are not required at this time in Ohio, they are recommended, so make your own choices. Please keep in mind that other people's choices may differ from your own and that everyone is welcome at an NASPC show. Uh, reserve your rooms now to be part of this great show. See you in August, Jeff. And uh, to find out more about that, go to naspc.org. I am really hoping to make it there. Um, also on uh, from Pipes Magazine, uh, let's see here. It says, uh, where do I sell pipe tobacco? Brian, maybe this can be talked about in pipe parts. Where can I sell some of this tobacco that I stocked up on but don't like anymore? I've got about six tins on the way to Steve Fallon, the pipe stud, but I have a lot of Latakia blends that I loved a few years ago, but I'm not a Latakia freak anymore. I'd like to cash out and reinvest in vapors. Um, I'd be willing to donate some to the JDRF auction, but I'm not sure if tobacco can be auctioned. If it can... I'm not sure they would auction much for Steve didn't want them. So here's, uh, here's my answer to that. All right. Are you ready for that? Uh, what do you do with tobacco that you don't like anymore? Well, if uh, Steve Fallon won't take them, there's multiple reasons why he may not take them. One, they might be bulks that are just jarred up or bagged up or two, they, you know, whatever the, you know, whatever the multiple reasons are. Um, on pipesmagazine.com, if you're a regular poster, I think you have to have over 100 posts before you can do it. There's a swap sell exchange section in there where you can swap out your tobacco that you don't like for stuff and you negotiate independently. 
Um, if you don't have a local pipe club like I do, uh, you can, through some of the forums on Facebook, I've seen some sell swap trades there. Um, the other thing that you might want to do, if you don't really need the money, is just you know jar them up safely and hold on to them for a while. Uh, and that would be my primary suggestion if you don't have somebody that you can trade to or a way of getting rid of them right now is you know, just hold on to them. You don't know. Your taste may change. Uh, you may meet new friends down the road or somewhere down the road that may become a super, you know, a super whatever blend that people want. So there's uh, there's there's my thoughts on that. Um, going back to uh, last week's uh, food for thought on real estate uh, with uh, Lori Brown, there's a couple of comments. And uh, one of them was that uh, Lori forced Kevin to be on the show. Um, no, actually, it was my idea. I reached out to Lori. Kevin found out about it after we had coordinated it. And I just thought maybe it'd be interesting for people to hear what, you know, something from a realtor's standpoint. And again, primarily for those who have never uh, never sold a house <laughs> or bought a house. Uh, however, uh, Casey Go says, like most people, I hate house hunting. I let the wife handle this on the very reasonable premise that if she's happy, I'm happy. About all I care about in the house is that the roof doesn't leak. Good show. <laughs> all right, there we go. Uh, going back to last week with Fred Hanna, Mike Stanley says, Dr. Fred Hanna is a heck of a gentleman. In addition to being a master blender, in my humble opinion, I remember he gifted me a pipe full of a blend he was working on, Wilderness or Legend, at an NASPC show. It was back when you could smoke inside the show. My palate was so fried by that time, I couldn't offer much in the way of specifics on my opinion. Fast forward to the demise of McClellan, and I cherished each tin I have of both blends. There you go. Uh, Trout Time says, uh, great series with great guests. I always enjoy Fred Hanna. He has such a wealth of knowledge. I want to see how Brian tops these latest shows. The bar has been raised. <laughs> yeah, so uh, again, that was, that was kind of fun, and I'm glad I, uh, you know, glad I was able to do it. Um, uh, Chicken Tooth says, enjoyed Dr. Fred Hanna's segment so much that I'm now listening to a podcast about existentialism that he was featured on, and it's really fascinating and helpful. So glad to have learned about him here. There you go. And uh, finally, let's see. Dino writes, it was great to hear my friend, my friend Fred's take on the seven questions. It was the perfect wrap-up of this series. Both erudite and droll, Fred provided answers that were not only informative and entertaining, but quite thought-provoking. I have and smoked an ADP pipe that is nearly 130 years old with a horn stem. I've yet to find any taste influence from the horn material. Even though I am often an aggressive pupper, puffer, pupper, <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed the upbeat Heaven by Los Lonely Boys, and like Mick, I like JoJo's bass work. Uh, community coffee, the stuff Jim Amish mainlines. A wonderful old-style coffee with absolutely no pretensions. Thanks again for an always entertaining show. You are welcome, Dino. And then lastly, uh, Casey Ghost says, Great show. Fred is always was the consummate guest 
He expresses opinions in a way that just doesn't seem to threaten yours. One thing I do miss about not going to pipe shows anymore is not getting a chance to talk to Fred. Well, there you go. Yeah, so I hope everybody enjoyed the uh, uh, seven experts. And uh, I've got some ideas for more in that vein for uh, future shows. So just stay tuned. All right, in just a moment, instead of a rant, we'll talk JDRF auction, uh, JDRF fundraiser items. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. JDRF fundraiser in full effect. Items have not been posted by Steve Fallon yet. Um, I will let you know on this show the date they go up, but these items are on the way to Steve right now, uh, including that uh, ice fishing pole from uh, Tim. So thank you very much. Uh, you know, that's a, a custom made pole. Uh, James Gilliam, a JSC handmade artisan pipe, has been uh, sent to Steve, and uh, I haven't seen it, and that's probably a good thing. Um, Robert Vasher of Laughing Moon Pipes donated a giant magnum. I mean, it's four inches tall. Uh, and then from Dave Shane at the Pipery, a leather roll-up, and then a 10-year-old tin, uh, a 10-year-old 8-ounce tin of GLP's Maltese Falcon. Uh, Jim Herbert, maybe it's Jim Abear, I apologize, but he's donated an 8-ounce bag of Esoterica Tilbury, a tin of Esoterica Margate, and a tin of the Dunhill, Dunhill named 965. Steve Norris at Vermont Freehand sent in uh, two tins of Balkan Sobrani, and then also a uh, Pimo pipe crafting book and a Stummel. And the Stummel and book will go together, so if you want to learn how to make your own pipe, uh, Craig Cedarquist of Cedarcraft.com, his brand new pipe valets that he's making, handmade out of wood. I've held it. I didn't use it, but I held it, and it it's it's nice. I mean, just a nice, you know, perfect way to decorate a or perfect way to load to load your pipe up. Uh, Ed Graves at Dark Fired Leather donated a, uh, a handmade everyday carry bag. It's similar to the one that he made for me that I have been using continuously since uh, February. So it's an everyday carry bag that you can hold a, you know, a wallet, a couple tins of tobacco in, pipe cleaners, pipe tools, has a couple of slots for pipes in it, makes a perfect everyday bag, and then a couple of leather-wrapped uh, Dejeep lighters. Uh, <laughs> I was tempted to keep those. 
Uh, from Nathan Davis at graywoody.com, a brand new K Woody relief grain, and also one of his NQA handmade pipes made by Nathan. And that one's got a little glow in the dark uh, treatment to it. So that's kind of cool. Uh, donated by Travis Carr, the bearded tamper, five of his handmade tampers. And he gave me one. I've been using it outside. And it's just, you know, again, handmade out of real wood. Beautiful. Uh, and then finally, Rondi, well, not finally, um, Robert Lawing, the law dog, a couple tins of tobacco, including a tin of uh, McCraney's red ribbon that I may be uh, drooling all over. And then lastly, uh, Rondi Reeves, and this goes back to last year when he gave me the tobacco. And let me tell you, it was hard to hold on to some of these tins and know that they were here, but hold them for the auctions. Uh, Rondi donated a, uh, an old pouch of Revelation, a tin of Dunhill early morning pipe, a tin of Musketeer, which I'd never seen before, a tin of Dunhill Durbar, a tin of the Cornell and Deal Small Batch Red Flake from 2017, a tin of McClellan 40th Anniversary, a tin of 2017 Christmas Cheer, a tin of McClellan Blue Mountain, a tin of McClellan Holiday Spirit, and then a tin of 2012 Frog Morton and a tin of Frog Morton across the pond. Uh, remember, all those items will be either listed on the pipestud.com or on Steve's Pipe Stud eBay listings. And again, I will uh, let you know exactly when. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram and you will see some pictures of the items that I've actually had here in my hands. And I will be posting um, pretty furiously when those items go up. Also, you can see pictures of the hats there. All right, enough of all that. This has been a big show with a lot of, uh, a lot of talking in it. But uh, thank you very much to uh, Mark Irwin for joining me, and thanks for all the work he did on the Peterson book. It is truly fabulous. Thank you all for tuning in, and until bomba next time. The clouds when we're together. Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. Happy Small thorn means just a little prick.